And so welcome everyone. If you don't have green on, you are welcoming a pinch. That's right, we're still in elementary school. So welcome to St. Patrick's Day. That's right. And so go ahead and get your giggles out. If you're not wearing green, you're about to be pinched. One, two, three, go. Okay. All right. So because I, I am wearing green. I just want to let everybody know that I've got a green pin on because today is not just St. Patrick's Day. Today is Lovey and my 18th wedding anniversary, everyone. 18 long years. So we were wearing this pin uh, on our fifth anniversary in Louisville, Kentucky, and they blinked back then, right? It's been a few years, um, so I guess the batteries are out. Can't change those. And we were ballroom dancing on our fifth anniversary, so that was fun. So we bring out a few mementos every year. Um, Here's what you need to know about Lovey. Uh, Her name's Nicole. Uh, She loves this church so very much. And so oftentimes you hear me, I'm a loud mouth, and I'm up here um, a lot. You don't hear from her as much, but just know that uh, what you have um, in Nicole is a prayer warrior who takes very seriously her role and her engagement in the body. And so um, she loves, you know, serving your kids and she loves being involved in, in, um, in, uh, in women's ministries. But uh, oftentimes, you, we, you know, we find her, hear her praying for you and praying for your marriages and praying for your kids. Um, oftentimes, I don't cry a whole lot, but you'll find Nicole actually crying and getting upset, you know, when, when she's engaging, you know, the body. So anyway, I love you, Nicole. Thanks so much for being a great partner in ministry. It's been awesome to be married to you for 18 years. And so uh, uh, anyway, all right. So um, we'll open up your scriptures uh, to Mark chapter 11. That's where we're going to be today. And, uh, and uh, we, we called it Palm Sunday. It's technically not Palm Sunday, but that's where the text will be today. So, so that's where we're going to get all kind of conflicted is that this is Palm Sunday, even though it's not. And so that's what you'll find in, in Mark chapter 11. But before we get there, I just want to ask a couple of questions or I want to kind of frame something for us. You ready? So what would it look like or what would it feel like or how would you envision the idea if you and your family, your kids, your spouse, your roommates, if you lived underneath a monarchy? Like if you lived in a society where there was a king who was sovereign, who was in complete control and those types of things, what would change in your life? What would be different if you lived in a society in which there was a real king who was able to dictate all types of things for you and for your family and those types of things? Would be able to, you know, claim what you were free to do or what you weren't free to do, to to, to claim the tax code, those types of things. What would it feel like to live underneath that type of sovereign, absolute control? Um, I don't know what these types of conditions would feel like. I've never been in a place like that, right? None of us have. Um, But when we look at history books or if we were able to even look in a few modern uh, places, we see a picture that's not very pretty. Oftentimes it's pretty gruesome. And so the families or the nations that live underneath some of these oppressive places is more tyranny and dictatorships than anything else. And so when we think kingship and we think monarchy, we actually don't think very positive things at all. And so, for instance, I mean, there's just I mean, thousands of these, these examples, maybe not thousands, but there's a lot of these examples in our history books where people like Henry VIII is just one of many examples. Henry VIII, and this is a quote, was as bloodthirsty as he was king. 
right? And so what is now written in the history books about this one guy, Henry VIII, is that he was as bloodthirsty as he was king. And so as he was king, and we would say, yes, that's true, he was also just a tyrant and a dictator and he would use his authority to control people, but also to hurt them very severely. He had six wives, of which he had two of them killed. He had best friends, his inner circle that he would burn at the stake. This guy was bad news. And so we look at history books and we go, okay, kingship or living underneath a kingdom is not a very pretty picture. And that's the same even in 2019. We don't have a whole lot of kings out there, but uh, we look at maybe the king of Saudi Arabia. We look at the, the, the Jordanian king and there's just a little piece of suspicion, right? You look at their kingdoms, you look at their reigns, and you hear of journalists disappearing. Or you understand that there's this, this underground kind of special ops that we're not real, real sure about. And so even today, we look at these kings and these kingships and these reigns, and we don't look at them very nicely. Because these places have power and authority and oftentimes use this power and authority for corruption. And so when you think kingdom or often type these types of kings, you think power and authority. Or you could think about authority and power, right? These are the things that come to mind. And that puts us into a little bit of a quandary this morning. Because as you guessed it, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem for the first time, you know, or for the last time, when Jesus comes, you got it. He comes claiming himself as, as a king. And he's claiming himself as king. And he's claiming himself as a king over a kingdom in which you and I have to find ourselves underneath these places and these things. And so it's, it's that question of what would it feel like or what would it be like for you and I to live underneath not just a king, but to live under the king under his authority and under his sovereign reign and rule. And so we have to square with this idea that Jesus is king. And so that's what we'll do this morning. Well, first and foremost, we'll look at what type of king Jesus is. And then we'll also, we'll then look at the, at the, the bottom half of the passage and we'll figure out exactly what it means for you and I to live into that kind of kingdom. But first and foremost, uh, we have to look at the passage and see what it says first. And so if you don't mind, turn to Mark chapter 11, 1 through 11. Uh, you also have it in your worship guide. And so feel free to follow along there. If you don't have a scriptures, we've printed it for you there in your worship guide. So Mark chapter 11, this is entitled the triumphal entry. This is what we have here. I mean, it's just, it's, he's even coming out in pretty robust ways. And so verse 1 says this. And when they, this is Jesus and the disciples and maybe even, uh, well, we'll see that there may be a, a pretty big crowd at this point. And now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to a place called Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. All right. They're approaching Jerusalem and he's sending, he's commissioning his disciples to do something pretty interesting. Go and find a colt tied up that's never been sat on. Okay, that'll be easy to find, Jesus. 
And so untie it and bring it. Verse 3, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. Verse 4 says, so they went and they found a colt tied at a door outside in, a, in the street and they untied it. Now there were some who were standing there and said to them, what are you doing untying that colt? I.e., that's not yours and I don't know you. What are you doing? And so they were outside and they said, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and then they threw their cloaks on the back of the donkey, on it. And then he, Jesus, Jesus sat on it. And many, there are other people here, and many spread their cloaks on the road, making a carpet of their cloaks. And then there are others who spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before, and then there were those who followed, were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And so what strikes us here is that Jesus has finally made it to Jerusalem. He is actually in the city. We've been waiting for this moment. Historians say that it's probably been about nine months since the Mount of Transfiguration. So a lot has happened between that moment all the way to him coming into Jerusalem. But we finally made it. And what Jesus is doing here is he is going from kind of a rural environment, kind of with his disciples, with some crowds, and he's shifting and he's saying, I've finally made it to the place, the centerpiece of Jerusalem. I'm about to walk in for the very last time. This is the crescendo. This is the climax of the story because everyone had been anticipating Jesus to come here. He didn't just move from rural place to metropolitan. He didn't just move from Judea and Galilee and all these places into the, the kind of the, the center city. But he also comes out in public. And he comes out in a real and a powerful way. And so when we think about what type of king Jesus will be or is, this is a moment where he is structuring himself very strategically. Because how does he come out? How does he arrive in Jerusalem? He throws himself a parade, right? This is a royal procession and he's coming out and there's leaves and there's cloaks and there's crowds and there's cheering and they're singing and he's the centerpiece and he's going down the road and everybody's crowding on. And so this royal procession is how Jesus is walking in or riding into Jerusalem. He's structuring himself as king. And that's the reason it's called the triumphal entry because he is setting himself up very, very differently. Do you remember this fall when President Donald J. Trump came to Johnson City? Do you remember this day? I don't remember what the day was. But on this day, airports were shut down. City schools were shut down. Interstates were shut down. There were 
kajillions of people wearing MAGA hats at the airports and cheering. And there were signs. There were, there's these, John, Josh Smith at WJHL was in a motorcade and he was like, look at this. And there were crowds on the left and right. And then they would go underneath underpasses and there were people cheering. Why? Because a sitting president, the president of the United States of America was coming to our little bitty town. And that's a big deal, Right? No matter what you think about Trump and his policies or just his character or those types of things, all of that was pushed aside because this was a historical moment when a sitting president comes to your town. And so the cheering and the crowds and the line that wrapped all the way around Johnson City waiting to get in, the cheers, the crowds, the hats, the signs, the parade, it's just, it was a big, big deal. And so when Jesus arrives, think about something like that. The city stops and pivots and points their affection toward one place. This is a royal procession. This is how Jesus arrives in Jerusalem with this type of pomp. The port of entry is a parade. It's something that's amazing. It's bound to be significant because all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, list the triumphal entry. This is how Jesus arrives. So just some context, Jesus's birth, there's only two of the four gospels. So obviously all four writers believe that this was a significant moment. And this is why he's moved from the rural part of the country into the city, but something else is happening. There's an undercurrent of something else. He's coming public but he's also allowing them to say something of him that he's never allowed before. These words like Messiah, these ideas of the Christ, the anointed one, the redeemer, the savior, all of these words that have been appropriated to Jesus, Jesus's three years of ministry, he has silenced disciples and said, I don't want anyone to know what you know. He has silenced people that he has healed and says, I don't want you to say another word about this. He has even silenced evil spirits as as they've come shrieking out of people and say, you are the Lord or you are the Christ. He has dampened them and given them a gag order. Not in this passage. Something has changed. The corner has been turned because now he is allowing people to say true things of him out in public. He is willing to receive these words publicly for the first time. Public worship. Bowing down is not just a private moment, but the entire city is now gazing upon him and he is allowing it. Things have changed. And so the first thing that you need to know about what type of king Jesus is, is he is allowing this praise to happen and he's coming out. He's arriving in a big, big way. The second thing that you see is in our passage, you hear some old timey words. You hear words like David and Hosanna and the kingdom, right? You hear these types of things in which um, may not mean a whole lot to us, but there's, it means a whole lot to them. And some, so Old Testament words are actually dripping out of this passage because Jesus's kingship is not just pomp, right? Not just amazing, but it's been around for a long time. People for hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years have been talking about this moment, that's why every, all four Gospels point to this. Because in the Old Testament, it rings true of who Jesus would be. 
Now, we see a guy on a donkey that's never been ridden before, and we kind of shrug our shoulders and go, what's the big deal? And yet, if you are a Jewish man or a woman or a Jewish family, and you see this or you hear this, you pause and you start murmuring again with one another. Do you remember that time when there's this time, the Old Testament, I, man, I can't remember where the passage is, but there's this time that Solomon, remember when, when he was king, didn't he get up on a colt and ride into a city? Yes, you're right. And then someone was like, it wasn't just Solomon. There's this guy, this king, a long time after that, his, his name was Jehu, and he was, he was commissioned and coordinated by, by Elijah. Remember the time when Jehu came into the city and he was riding on a colt that's amazing. Remember that. And then someone, of course, the kind of the, the, the Hebrew scholar was like, oh, you guys, you don't know what you're talking about. You're just talking in pictures. Don't you remember that passage in Zechariah 9? And everybody goes, no, never even read Zechariah, right? Because like, trust me, it's a part of the Old Testament, right? But I've got it memorized. Let me tell you exactly what. And so then the whole hush of the crowd listens to some geek trying to like meditate on Zechariah 9 and he pontificates and he reads this. He says, don't you remember this was true about the Messiah? This is what was true about the king. Zechariah 9, and then he speaks out. He says, this is what the word of the Lord says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. This is sounding very familiar. It seems like Mark, uh, Mark chapter 11 is stealing these words right out of Zechariah's mouth. Behold, your king comes to you. He's about to come to you. He's righteous and having salvation is he. Having salvation is he. What you don't know or what you may not know is that Hosanna, this idea, the shouting of Hosanna is also them screaming, save us or save me. They're pointing to Zechariah 9 and saying, yes, salvation is coming. Salvation is he, comma, and then everybody quiets because they're waiting for this moment. Humble and riding on a donkey. Humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And everybody looks back to Jesus and says, this is him. This is the one that we've been all waiting for. And he says, it's not over. Hang on, let me continue to, to quote Zechariah 10. He says, I will cut off the chariot, right? This amazing moment of, 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 of war and batter. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim. And then I will also cut off the war horse from Jerusalem. I will, I will truly, I will cut them off at the knees. I will put a spoke in the chariot. And the battle bow shall be cut off. There will be, they will be completely disarmed. Because he will proclaim peace to the nations. And he will rule and extend from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. This is a prophecy of what we are seeing unfold is that Jesus is allowing adoration. He's allowing praise to come to him, Zechariah 9. He's then saying, if you have put the king in some kind of box, guess what? This type of king is not gonna play by the rules that you have for him because he's going to cut off the chariot and cut off the bow and cut off the war horse. And instead, he will be humble and he will ride in on a donkey. 
This is how you know something significant is happening because the pomp, right? And the glory and the majesty will not be a guy and a crown and a white stallion running and, and just soldiers. Instead, it will be a humble moment with someone riding on a donkey parading through town. And this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is doing this because what is confounding to us is that he can have both glory and majesty and beauty and sovereignty, and yet he will also have humility at the base core of who you are. If you want to follow after Jesus, just know that the heartbeat of Jesus is this humble state where he will do anything and everything for us. He will literally lay down his life for us. This is the type of king that we follow. This is the king that is posturing himself differently than every other king on earth. The king of Jordan and the king of Saudi Arabia and King Henry VIII, none of these guys have anything to do with this type of moment because they are always structuring their life and structuring their authority in order to usurp it onto other people. But Jesus is the exact opposite and he will come underneath the people to lift them up and show them the glory. This is the kind of king that we want to be a part of and the type of kingdom that we want to be. This is the conquering king. And so Jesus comes out with great pomp and he comes with great amazement with the fact that uh, he is, is just dripping with Old Testament. But if you are a king and if you, are, if you have a kingdom, there has to be some type of reign. There's going to have to be some type of control and there's going to have to be, have some kind of authority, right? I mean, there's, there's going to have to have some kind of like where, okay, I know what's going on. If there is 11 verses that have meticulous authority and control and sovereign ability is these 11 verses because there are things that are unexplainable in here that says this king is no joke he's able to arrange things and prearrange things without him even be present he can give you magic magic uh, phrases that will keep you out of jail and he will rotate everything so that we know that this is the king that we have been waiting for. And so we know that when Jesus drew near to Jerusalem, Jerusalem was important because Jerusalem was the holy city. Jesus was reigning and ruling and sovereign over the type of city he would enter. And this was Jerusalem, the holy city. So he was not just doing something sporadically. He was intentionally going to Jerusalem. The second thing that we know is this is the first day of Passover. He's not just sovereign over the place that he's arriving. He's also sovereign over the timing of all this. This is truly, this is Palm Sunday. This is the first day of Passover week. If you don't know much about Passover, this is where the entire nation of Israel, if you called yourself a Jew or a Hebrew, if you're an Israelite, you show up and you pilgrim to Jerusalem. They say that over 2 million people would visit Jerusalem on a yearly basis. Every year at Passover, people would descend onto Jerusalem, would come and just fill the city to celebrate this moment, the moment in which God rescued his people from slavery. 
and they would celebrate the fact that Jesus, or I'm sorry, that God had rescued them. The fact that they were once in slavery and now they were free. And not just free, but they were given a promised land. And right now, at this moment, in Jerusalem, we are in the promised land. And this Passover festival and the Passover feast would recognize that there was a lamb, a lamb that was slain on that, that night many thousands of years ago. And that lamb was significant for the death angel to pass over. And they would get together and they would eat and they would drink and they would sing and they would proclaim the glories of God and they would do this year after year after year, generation after generation after generation. And Jesus our king walks into not just Jerusalem, but into this time because Passover is still important. There is still freedom to be had, slavery to be abated, and a lamb that needs to be slain. And what the crowd did not know is that the slavery that they were rejoicing over was not the slavery in Egypt, but the slavery over sin and death. The freedom that they were going to enjoy was not just the promised land proper, but this promised land of a new heavens and a new earth where everything would be made new. And the fact that the lamb was not going to bah and have wool and be killed and eaten. Instead, it would be a person, the lamb of God, who would set them free. Jesus was over sovereignty, over both the time and the place. It was significant. This was not just by accident. Not only that, but things and people. I mean, in this passage, you've got this, this, this intricate, like delicate moment in which people are arranged and told to say certain things. But here's what's amazing to me here is the fact that when Jesus says, and if anyone says, this is verse three, and if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, and this is kind of the, the main redemptive idea of this whole passage. The Lord has need of it. The fact is that the Lord, the master, the king, has need of it. Jesus is saying, I am the king over all people and all things. And so you two disciples, you go because I've got sovereign control over that. You're going to meet a few people and they're going to be suspicious because you're stealing their donkey. And so here's what you say. You just say these things and you say, here's the Lord is in need of it. And all fears and all suspicion and all anger will be abated, will just completely fall to the floor. And they will let you take their prized possession. They will let you take a donkey that has never been sat on, which from all of Old Testament history tells us that if you have an un, a, 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 a colt that was unsat on, it was set apart for special purposes, for sacred purposes, as in carrying the Ark of the Covenant from point A to B in the Old Testament. They did not want to give up this colt, but they do willingly. Why? Because the Lord has need of it. So people, places, things, times, events. Jesus is over all of these things. And so why is that important for you and me? Because Jesus is our king. And this is our kingdom. And so what we must do is we must find ourselves enjoying the type of kingdom that he has in place for us and enjoying the type of king that he truly is. 
And so in this passage, these 11 verses, he looks to you and he looks to me and he asks you a pretty strong question. Do you want to come underneath the authority and the control of this type of king? Plain and simple, do you want him? And if so, there's some things that have to line up with us. You can't just want a savior. You have to have a Lord. You can't just have a Lord without having a master. You can't have a master without understanding that there is some type of reigning and rule. This passage tells you and I that we need to be, our hearts need to be quickened and we need to be willing to shift two things back toward him. The first thing that we have to shift underneath his reign, underneath his rule is our possessions because we see that here, that our possessions, the things that we own, the things that he's been given we've been given are actually underneath his control. And the second thing that we have to willingly give back to him is our praise, the things that come off of our lips. And so let's first think a little bit about what it would mean to give over our possessions. And so this idea that if the Lord has need of it, that means that Jesus has, this is what you need to write down, has access to your stuff. If you're gonna live underneath a kingdom and live underneath this king, and verse three is true, then you need to allow the Lord to have access to your stuff. Why? Because he is king and he's Lord and he owned it first. And so this type of king will walk into your life and walk into your possessions and say, that cloak belongs to me. That leafy branch belongs to me. That donkey belongs to me and not even bat an eye. Why? Because the types of possessions that we have have actually been inherited, right? We haven't earned it. It is a gift of God. And that's why he says the reason that these strangers, unnamed people in this unnamed town were given this one donkey is because of verse three, the Lord has need of it. Have we come under the righteous and the good rule of King Jesus so that our bodies, the temple of God are his? That is just on loan from him. And so that our bodies as the temple of God are actually underneath his reign and rule. And we do as he wants us, not as we naturally want. Or our words, the types of things that we think that we own and the things that we have control, does the Lord have need of them? Have we looked at not just our bodies and our physiques, but also our words and like, are they underneath the reign and the rule of King Jesus? Not to mention our possessions, the facts that we have cloaks and we have branches and that we have donkeys and we have things that the Lord has given to you as a good father gives good gifts to his kids. That's what we've done. So everything that we have belongs to him. Jackets and collars and shoes and mats and gems and homes and spare bedrooms and lamps and all types of things. Do they have a purpose? Are they being used or utilized for the king and for the kingdom's sake? This is the challenge for you and I, for us to kind of just walk toward him with our, with our bodies, with our lives, with our possessions, with our words and say, no, it's underneath the lordship of Christ Jesus. And the second thing that he is asking of us from this passage 
is also our praise. Our praise. Because we have equated praise with a moment like this where we think the only time we get to sing or we should sing is at church. I would like to direct your attention to these 11 verses to say that this cloak and this donkey and this praise was not in the church house. This was everyday Christians doing everyday kind of things where they are shifting and they are rotating their lives underneath the reign and rule of Jesus. And so he wants our praise. Our king gets our praise. And that's what it means to sing Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest meaning come and to save us. And come, we want to bring blessing to the name of the Lord. These are traditional songs of, 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 of praise and glory to him. And so do we naturally find in our hearts and our minds, do we, do we, do we find ourselves shadow, shout, shouting? Those who went before and those who followed were shouting Hosanna, also means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They are shouting. Psalm 100, make a joyful noise. Sing with a big and a boisterous song. This is a familiar song to them. They have sung this a hundred times. It's just naturally coming out of our hearts and minds. They're able to shout it. They're able to sing it. They're able to do it in, in, uh, within a crowd. This is what they're able to do because it's naturally in here and they're giving it over to, to Jesus. They don't need a choir director. They don't need an amplification. They don't need mics. They don't need a stage set. It's just ripping. It's just riffing out of our hearts and our mind because that's King Jesus. They don't need any orchestration or anything. It's just rolling off of their heart and out of their mouths. In the same way that we would sing Star, the Star Spangled Banner, or the way we would sing Happy Birthday as loud and obnoxious as we can, or Rocky Top after we beat UK, right? That's good, right? We just sing these things. Why? Because it just naturally comes out. This is what is naturally coming out when they see Jesus for who he is. Jesus wants our possessions underneath, and he wants our words, he wants our praises. And so the day that my grandmother, Winnie, passed away, uh, we were there at the gravesite, and uh, we had celebrated her life well. And um, for whatever reason, my uncle Jody had packed his trunk full of, sh of shovels. And he says, nobody, nobody buries grandma except for family. And he brought enough shovels for the grandsons to share amongst ourselves. He says, no funeral home's gonna bury mama. That belongs to the boys. And so here we are in our black suits with shovels and red Georgia clay. And we find ourselves one shovel full after another burying my grandmother. One shovel after another, seeing her casket slowly disappear. But as we shoveled and shoveled and shoveled, the rest of the family just started to sing old hymns. They didn't need an old like Broadman hymnal or they didn't need any prompting. They just started to sing. And they sang because of a moment of just amazement. But the fact that this woman and this family belongs somewhere else. And they're sort of singing songs to the Lord. 
the reason that these people sang Hosanna, Hosanna save us. Because they thought that one day that the kingdom would be set up and they would come into this royal reign in which Jesus would have a crown and the, and the Romans would be completely annihilated. But what Jesus is doing is he's setting up a different type of kingdom. He says, he says the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die as a ransom and to pay the price so that he would satisfy the justice of, of the Lord. So that God could offer you and I forgiveness of sins. And so if we are to receive him, we must receive him for who he is. And what he is, is the one who would come to lay down his life for us and to give his life for us. For you and I, we have to question, do we want a king? And if we're willing to live inside of a king, kingdom and under a king, is he the type of king that we would want to follow? The last verse of this passage ends kind of abruptly with Jesus looking at the temple and looking left and right and just wondering what's going to happen next. And there's a little phrase that says, and Jesus entered Jerusalem and where did he go? He went into the temple first. He entered and when he looked around at everything, because it was already late, he went out to Bethany with his 12. But this little idea that he looked around at everything is this idea that he is perceiving something. And this little phrase is actually he's perceiving judgment in his heart because he knows the same people that are shouting Hosanna in the day a few days later will be shouting with more fervor and more, more frustration, crucify him. Same crowd, same voice, different words. What King Jesus has come to do is to set up his kingdom. And how he will reign and rule through his humility is to lay down his life for you and me. We don't want to be fickle Christians. Shallow soil Christians where we will with great joy and, and, and exuberance cry, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna. But many, many days later, we will spit on him and mock, on, mock him. Instead, we want to say that's the king and no matter where he takes us or what he calls us to do, that's where I'm gonna follow, no matter what. This is a great call on our, on our life of a king over our possessions, but most importantly, our praise. Are you willing to give him your praise this morning and say, I want to follow him? There's some men and women in the back. That's our prayer corner, our community care team. There are some of you in here that aren't following Jesus, who've rejected him as king. And maybe this morning you want to make that right. And you want to follow after and to lay things over and be open-handed with everything, both possessions and our praise. Just know that there's men and women back there, right? Uh, they're wanting to pray for you. Uh, let's pray. And so Lord, um, as we walk into a moment of sacrifice where we see your body given for us, your blood poured out for us,
We pray, King Jesus, that you would claim our lives as different. This is a different type of table because you're a different type of king. You don't want your name just for your namesake. You want your name to be glorified because of you, because you laid your life down for us. Jesus, I pray for our faith family now. I pray for those who are not walking with Jesus or following Jesus, that today would be a day where they would pivot their life and they would start saying, yes, I trust this type of king who knows all things, but more than anything, willing to lay down his life for us. Thank you for the parade, Lord. But Lord, more than that, thank you for bearing the cup of wrath, bearing the judgment that we could never bear. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.